Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Hello and welcome to Transporter Lock, episode number 117 for Sunday, April 2nd. 2023. Yes, that's right. We waited a day so that you would not interpret this as an April Fool's joke. I am Chief Engineer Ken Gagney, and I am not joined today by Captain Sabriel Maston. I have had a long career in retail, including some stores that you youngsters may not have heard of, including Walden Books, Software, etc., and Blockbuster Video. One of the things I learned in that career was always give priority to the customer who's in the store. If you have somebody standing in front of you and somebody on the phone, you tell the person on the phone to hold. And that is exactly what Sabriel is doing. She has some uh, visiting emissaries from other ships this weekend. And so she is spending her time with them. And she's been afforded that shore leave so that we can do transporter lock in the meantime. So I've recruited some help that helped being formerly the floating head of God from Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, now assumed corporeal form, Dana Ross. Hello, Commodore Dana Ross. Hello, Commodore 64, Dana Ross. Ah. Yeah, it is so good to be here. I figured if Jordy can be a Commodore, so can I. That sounds very fitting. So Dana, it's been two and a half years since you were last on this show talking about Star Trek Discovery Season 3, Episode 6, Scavengers, way back in November of 2020. Today we're here to talk about Picard. But for those listeners who may not remember you from all those years ago, can you give us a brief rundown of who you are? Oh my goodness. Okay. So my name is Dana Ross. I live in Boston, Massachusetts. I am a uh, manager of computer programmers by trade. I also program myself. I'm a collector of vintage computers. Uh, I am a mother and a wife and now a homeowner. And I have been a Star Trek fan ever since I was curled up on my daddy's chest watching TOS reruns. Uh, back in Chicago. So it's been a lifelong love of mine. So you've gone right from TOS to TNG, DS9, Voyager, Enterprise, Discovery, all of them? I watched the debut episode of TNG, Encounter at Farpoint, on our, our what was it, 20-something-inch CRT TV in the living room, yeah. It's so cool to think that even though you and I only met about 10 years ago, that way back in 1987, on that Monday night, you and I were watching the same show at the same time. I know. Although maybe I was an hour ahead of you because you were in Chicago at the time, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. So you probably saw it before me. <laughs> well, no spoilers. There was no internet back then. <laughs> Excellent. And also, you said that you program yourself. And when you said that, I couldn't help but imagine you just like flipping open your chest cavity to all the dip switches and changing <laughs> things around to modify your own behavior. Well, you know, being a transgender, I am a bit of a self-made woman. So there is actually <laughs> some truth to that. I suppose there is. Excellent. Anything else that we should chat about before we dive right into Picard? Um, anything but Picard. Uh, that sounds great. Excellent. So let's see. We are here today to talk about episode six, The Bounty, and episode seven, Dominion, those being in Star Trek Picard season three, the third and final season. Before we get into those specific episodes, just briefly, Dana, we're more than halfway through the final season of Picard. What's been your impression of it so far? 
Oh, Ken. Um, so before this call, I did a, a quick tarot card draw, just a single card, and it was the Hanged Man, which tells me that somebody is going to expose me to a different perspective, and I'm really hoping you'll change my perspective on Star Trek Picard today. Because um, oh. I have to say, it's feeling like, especially three seasons into it, it's feeling almost more like a job that, to watch Star Trek than it should. And I can't really place any particular thing other than I think it would be more engaging if this were the first season of Picard. I wow. think, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So you were, so you were underwhelmed by the first two seasons then? I really was. Um, there's just been this feeling that I, I can't explain it. This, this idea of everything revolving around Jean-Luc Picard. The first season was Picard as Robot Jesus, where he was single-handedly responsible for preventing genocide of um, the artificial life forms. And I think that was a, a good idea. And um, I think if we had just stopped there, I think it might have been you know, a, a very good almost miniseries. Um, but then we put him into a robot body himself. And now he gets to have a season two instead of, you know, passing away season two, he's the savior of the Borg. And, you know, they specifically sought him out season three. We now have an entire galactic conspiracy theory revolving around Jean-Luc Picard. And I think of these three seasons, I think this is the strongest one. Um, I think it gets a little mired in fan service, but I think the plot is heavy in weight. I think that the action is really well executed. And I think there's that familiar feeling of the entire ensemble cast being together. I think season three is really strong from that aspect. I think personally, I'm just kind of worn out on this Picard as space Jesus kind of allegory. And yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with it. So it sounds like you're enjoying the third season. It's the context of what came before that's dragging it down. Is that right? Exactly. Okay. Because I agree, season three is the strongest of the three seasons. The first season was fine. The second season, as Sabri and I have discussed, the first two episodes and the last two episodes, great. The middle six, just filler. Yeah. And But finally, the third season, I feel like I am on the edge of my seat every week. There have been at least two scenes where I've been screaming screaming at the television four scenes where i've been literally in tears and one scene where i had a knot in of tension in the pit of my stomach because i had no idea how they were going to get out of this yeah and for and for one season to evoke that many emotions i mean granted i'm a pretty emotional guy anyway but i think it's really effective storytelling when a show makes you feel something anything regardless of what that thing is and season three is has been really effective at that for me. 
Yeah, I would agree completely. In fact, I have been in tears over an episode myself. It's very well done, very well acted. As I mentioned, I love seeing the ensemble cast together because that's when Star Trek is at its strongest. It's not a show about a single person. And I think Discovery learned that lesson early on with Michael Burnham. You really need to put that, you can focus on one person, but they have to be in the context of a broader crew. And I think season three really plays into that very well. It's not just cameo appearances from Riker and Troy like we had before. It's everybody coming together to solve a problem. And I think, yeah, there, there's a lot of, lot of um, good vibes from seeing the family back together. I think this entire cast has always worked well together. And I really appreciate Brent Spiner getting a chance to be Brent Spiner. Because I know nobody loves the episode Masks from TNG, but as a former you know, high school theater geek, I love seeing an actor get the opportunity to play multiple roles almost at the same time talking to themselves. So uh, Brent Spiner has amazing talent, and it's so good to see him getting those opportunities to be both data and lore at the same time. Certainly, we've seen... Brent Spiner play probably more roles in the history of Star Trek than any other actor. But what you're focusing mm-hmm. on is the juxtaposition of being able to play them almost simultaneously. Absolutely. And that's not easy. Yeah. When you said there was one scene that made you cry, do you remember what that scene was? And can you share it with us? Um, I believe it was the reveal um, that Picard had a son. Because I know that's something we've touched on in Star Trek before. I'm blanking out on the the name of that last movie. Nemesis? Uh, Nemesis, yeah. Um, so we've touched on ideas like that. But um, still, I mean, this is an idea that should be, you know, explored more. Picard has always been married to Starfleet. And here he is faced with this revelation. and. I feel like we dove into that a little bit for a couple episodes and it's largely been kind of left on the floor. I would love to see Picard grappling with this more. And again, that, that kind of ties into you know this season in general. Um, we, there's been a lot of focus on action. And I really think there's some good opportunities for character exploration here. And I hope we get that in the back half of the season. I hope we see an exploration of Picard and Beverly. I hope we see Picard grappling more with being a father. And yeah. There was also an episode, I think, in season seven of TNG where he was purported to have a son. And it turned out, I think, a Ferengi had genetically modified uh, some kid to have yeah. the same DNA. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. So this has been a theme in TNG. And this is sort of playing on the phrase, the next generation. This is what it's all mm-hmm. about. Exactly. And yeah, you know, now that you say that one of the themes of Picard has been, you know, that he's, he's growing older and it's time to pass the torch on and to rely on the younger folks around him and give them opportunities to excel and pass his wisdom on. And yeah, this is, this is playing into that theme nicely. Which is one reason why former guest of the show, Susan Arndt, suggested at the end of season one, they should have let Picard die. And the continuing seasons would be the crew he assembled in the first season going on their own adventures. Definitely. I think 
Um, I think that would have been good. I love seeing Patrick Stewart. You know, like Brent Spiner, he's a very versatile actor. He's very skilled at it. Um, but yeah, I think in terms of the storyline, um, there's no consequence, right? Picard keeps coming back from everything. Um, going back to that space Jesus metaphor. And that is probably my biggest complaint with season three as well, is that we know the Dominion, the Dominion has taken over Starfleet all the way to its core. But what does that mean? They've taken over the Earth before. They, uh, we have seen space tummy worms take over, you know, the Admiralty before. Uh, first of all, Starfleet needs some better security, seriously. Mm-hmm. And, but, you know, at the end, I'm kind of wondering, you know, where's the gravitas to this? We know Picard is going to, you know, survive. We, we don't know about Jack's future, but I can pretty much guarantee, you know, it's going to be a fairly happy ending. Although now that I say that, I wonder what is in store for Picard. It's the third season. It's the final season. The I final think. season. Yeah. I mean, anybody could die. Mm-hmm. Unless they want to do that Captain Worf spinoff. I wouldn't be opposed to a Worf and Raffi spinoff. <laughs> I feel like the way they're playing Worf this season, that would almost be a comedy spinoff, like mm-hmm. a buddy cop show. <laughs> I could totally see that and I would love it. Yeah. Now that I hear myself saying it, I too would not be opposed. Yep. And tell me it was not the best, you know, kind of recurring joke, the whole thing about hugging when the, the crew got to see each other again. Worf, Worf is not a hugger, but Jordy, Jordy is. I love that. You know, I've mentioned this on previous discussions of Picard, that I just love seeing physical intimacy, especially among men. And, you yes. know, when it was Jordy and Crusher or Crusher and Worf, not the same thing, but we've seen, Picard, we've seen Picard hug Q. We've seen Picard and Riker just amicably putting their arms around each other's shoulders. And I just, I love that breakdown of toxic masculinity that we're so accustomed to. Absolutely. And again, these are people who have known each other for, well, aside from Q, I I can't really say, you know, he's known anybody for a lifetime, but these are people who have known and worked together for forever. They have faced death together. They have shared their highs and their lows. And I think it's perfectly natural in that kind of situation to to feel some camaraderie and some respect and some love toward people. I I think it's wonderful to see that instead of this just being, you know, military, cold. These are human beings, and it's wonderful to see that. Yeah, as Sydney reminds her dad in this episode, this is his family. Yeah. Oh my goodness. How isn't it wonderful to see? the whole LaForge family together too. Yeah. Let's talk about the bounty episode six. So Mm -hmm. this episode is set primarily in two places. One is Daystrom station and the other is the ship museum. Mm -hmm. And we, we, this is the episode where they reintroduce Jordy LaForge. We've had a lot Mm -hmm. of other TNG crew members show back up and uh, he shows up with, Another one of his on-screen daughters, this one played by his real-life daughter. Yep. Isn't that cool, too? 
you know, Sabriel and I had some confusing back and forth to try to figure out who was going to be playing who in this season. And I knew that LeVar Burton's daughter, Micah Burton, would show up in this season, but I didn't realize she would be playing Jordy LaForge's daughter. And I, I love it when they do that. I think that's great. Yeah. And I, I, I'm still a little confused about a couple things, though. One is they made such a big deal about Worf's reintroduction, about Crusher's reintroduction. I mean, getting them onto the ship was a big deal. Them showing up in the show was a big deal. And this case, they go to the spaceship museum, the Starfleet Museum, and Jordy just shows up on screen. And I'm, I couldn't even tell if Picard knew he was there if that's why they sought out that station or if it was just a surprise, like, Oh, this station happens to be manned by my old friend, Joey LaForge. Yeah, that's a good question. Wasn't there a discussion about knowing a couple places they could hide out? And I thought that's why they ended up there because they knew Jody would be a safe person to turn to. I wasn't sure if it was that, or if it's because they just thought, Oh, we can, you know, hide out among all these other ships. So we should go to the museum. I guess it makes sense that they would seek out a familiar face though, especially when, you're not supposed to trust anybody because anybody could be a changeling. Exactly. And, you know, not to be a, a spoiler here, but in Dominion, we see Seven turn to Tuvok when she needs somebody to connect with and, mm-hmm. you know, discuss the conspiracy going on. So definitely, I, I think in those times of stress, we do turn to familiar faces. Yeah. There are two questions I have, though, about where LaForge has ended up 30 years since TNG. One is... How do you go from being a chief engineer to essentially being a museum curator? Well, if it's anything like my story, you start accumulating old computers or old starships and you don't know what to do with them. So you tell everybody you're starting a museum so they get off your case about it. I mean, how many engineers have a, a bunch of old servers or old uh, desktops in their, their possession? And uh, no, but I don't know. I think Jordy uh, is one of those people that could never handle retirement. He could mm-hmm. never be sitting on the beach drinking tropical drinks on Risa, mm-hmm. uh, getting his horgon out. Um, I think... I think he is somebody who would still need to tinker mm-hmm. and still need to stay on top of technology. And I, I could very well see him retiring in a nice, cozy environment like that with old, familiar starships. And um, just kind of, I can see him puttering. That was always the term we used with my grandpa. He's puttering. If the actor was still available, who I could really see in this role is after the TNG episode Relics, Scotty just went off in his shuttlecraft and we never saw him again. But for a man out of time to be curating old ships, including Kirk's Enterprise, mm-hmm. that would be that would be really fitting. That would totally be it. Mm-hmm. But I could see that with Jordy as well. Mm-hmm. Also, he seems pretty upset that one of his daughters went into Starfleet as a navigator instead of an engineer, which seems (laughs) very precise expectations for your children. I think most parents, including Picard, would be thrilled if his kid just went into Starfleet full stop. But no, Mm -hmm. this this kid, Sydney, has to be an engineer. And I don't know, Jordy doesn't seem like 
from what we saw 30 years ago on TNG, like he would be that much of a jerk. Yeah, I really couldn't see that. That just struck me as very out of character. Especially since Sabriel pointed out that TNG started with LeVar Burton's character as the navigator. (gasps) You're right. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was wearing red. He was at the con. Mm -hmm. He was piloting the ship. Uh, Gene Roddenberry thought it would be clever to have the blind man piloting the ship. Mm -hmm. And so his daughter follows in his footsteps and he says, no, you're doing it wrong. And also the way that Jordy said to his daughter, like, don't risk yourself for this crew. They're not your family. And she turns around and says, they are. And you taught me that. You know, she's right. And again, I was a little disappointed that Jordy had forgotten that because this was such an important crew to him. Everybody was. Yeah. Um, That's so true. And, you know, going back to TNG, I always felt that with these people. And you saw the friendship grow between Data and Jordy, and you saw everybody working together so well. You saw Picard almost as a mentor to him. Um, definitely he saw himself, seemed to see himself as a father figure for Wesley, um, or at least a mentor for Wesley. And yeah, it is, it is a very different vibe there from him. And I'm kind of wondering maybe if we're going to either see him warm up a little, little character growth there, or we're going to find out what, uh, what changed him so much. Right. It's been 30 years. A lot of things can change. I'm not saying it's mm-hmm. impossible that Jordy would behave this way, but without that context of knowing what has happened in the last 30 years, yeah. for, for us, it seems like a leap from the Jordy we last saw to this Jordy. Definitely. And maybe that has something to do with why he's stationed in a museum off by himself like that. Hmm. If if canon does not address it, I think we need to write some fan fiction after this. In the beta canon, Jordy was the one who developed the spaceship that Spock used to deliver the red matter to try to prevent the supernova from enveloping the planet of Romulus. Mm-hmm. That was what, the Countdown comic, I think it was called? Exactly. Yeah. But apparently, you know, that's not canon and it's not made mm-hmm. canon here. So uh, there were some other old familiar characters. Of course, this being a museum, we got to see a lot of old spaceships. What did you think mm-hmm. about that montage? Oh, my goodness. I loved all of it. I especially loved seeing Voyager in there looking no worse for the wear after its journey. Um, I thought that was great. Um, but I have to say, I especially loved the cameo of uh, Moriarty in Daystrom. And I was wondering, you know, how they were, what his purpose of being there was. I was kind of wondering, you know, if this was an actual physical manifestation of him, but I think the way they, they handled it with him as the security system was beautiful. I I thought it was very well played and very in line with what I would expect from the Daystrom Institute. Yeah, we'll we'll totally talk about that. I, I there's a lot that happened on Daystrom. I want to stick to the museum for just a little bit longer. Mm, gotcha. Uh, yeah, because I too loved seeing Voyager, and that is one of the two scenes in this episode that had me crying. Mm-hmm. Not just seeing the ship, but seeing Seven seeing the ship. Oh my God! Yes, 
Ken, I have a question. Um, since you and I had a very similar history of Star Trek, what was your take on Voyager when it was on the air? In my opinion, th- I, well, at least in my opinion of that day and age, which was 20 years ago, my opinion was there is no bad Star Trek. There is better and worse Star Trek, but there is no bad Star Trek. And that was my opinion of Voyager at the time. I enjoyed it. Uh, I was probably, you know, I was in my late teens when it started airing. And so I'm not sure I was aware of the issues of like, oh, Seven of Nine was just brought on board for sex appeal. and Let's mm-hmm. pour her into a cat suit and stick her in a cargo bay and not give her quarters. And so she's totally exposed to everybody when she's sleeping. Um, but I liked it. I liked the, the, the evolution of the character of Tom Paris, although I don't mm-hmm. know if him hooking up with Bellana was necessarily a, a natural storyline. Uh, I liked the evolution of the Maquis integrating into the ship, although I think it could have been drawn out a little bit further. Oh, uh, definitely. Yeah, but overall, yeah, I, I liked it. It was, you know, they build it as Lost in Space with Star Trek. Uh, lost in Space is a little bit before my time, and I, but I do understand it was a lot campier than Star Trek. But yeah, I enjoyed it. What about you? Yeah, I was very much in the same boat in that I enjoyed it, but I didn't really love it. And I think there were a lot of people, um, well, especially online in the message boards I was in, you know, people talking about how this is this is terrible, this isn't Star Trek, and you either thought it was okay or you hated it. And I think in recent years, we've seen opinions really turn on that. I think especially with younger folk getting into Star Trek again, I think people are really resonating with Kate Mulgrew as Janeway, as a female captain. I think Seven of Nine's story is getting more resonance with people. I think, I think you know, the, the Maquis, uh, I agree that could have been dragged out a lot more and we could have seen more conflict. But I think that whole idea challenged a lot of what we thought was Star Trek. And I think, you know, especially in recent years, we've just seen so much more love for it that I think that moment of seeing Voyager in the museum kind of sealed, you know, that this this is as much a part of Trek history as any other series. That, you know, it may have, may have had a ro- rocky start. It may not have had the fan, you know, love in the beginning, but it is very much a beloved part of canon now. And you see that in Discovery as well with the USS Nog and what is it, the Voyager G, I think. I think, you know, the, the writers and Paramount and everyone are recognizing that Voyager is very powerful to people now. And I'm so glad to see it recognized like that. And, you know, seeing seven in such a role in uh, Picard has been amazing and seeing Tuvok back. I think it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. And we have Janeway and Chakotay in Star Trek prodigy. And it sounds like we're almost certainly going to see Admiral Janeway at some point in Picard. I hope so. I hope so. And I, uh, certainly look forward to more of Kate. I love her. She is mm-hmm. she is amazing. Yeah. One more callback I want to point out from the Starfleet Museum was mm-hmm. the superior Klingon technology of the cloaking <laughs> device. <laughs> right? 
Um, I was not expecting that to be as relevant to the plot as it turned out to be. But, oh my God, that was so beautiful. Yeah, and it's the same cloaking device that Kirk used in Star Trek IV, which is awesome. The one with the whales, yes. I heard of it. Speaking of, I saw that New Year's Eve of whatever year it came out in a theater in Glenview, Illinois. So, Ah, good times. Good times. Two concerns I have about the cloaking device, though. One is they only used it for like five seconds. It didn't Mm -hmm. seem as critical as I would have hoped. And secondly, if they were at the Starfleet Museum and they needed a cloaking device that worked with Starfleet ships... The Defiant is right there. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Um, I don't know enough about the Defiant's cloaking device. Is it big enough to cloak a ship like that? Maybe not. And it's also not Klingon. It's Romulan. And maybe the Mm -hmm. Romulans wanted the cloaking device back after the Dominion War. I don't know. Oh, yeah. But it was just alone. Yeah. But it was neat to see the Defiant. I wish either... Worf or Riker had been there to say, tough little chip. <laughs> yep. All right. Although I wonder with the, the changelings, you know, being such a, a plot point in this season, I wonder if we'll see the Defiant taken out of mothballs and get a little more action. That would be cool, but I'm guessing we've probably seen the end of it. Probably. And that's a shame. So, so let's move over to Daystrom. You were talking about Moriarty, and I actually mm-hmm. felt like this was the first fan service that felt like it was only there for fan service because professor Moriarty in TNG was cunning, conniving, able to defeat data per Mm -hmm. his specifications. And this guy, he could have just been any hologram with a pistol. That's true. Um, I still think, um, you know, given, um, Given the return of Data and Lore, I think Moriarty being a guard for them is very appropriate, though. Hmm. Yeah, it just kind of fits on the theme. And, you know, Dr. Soong, or or sorry, which Soong are we on now? Alton Soong. Yep. Um, probably would have thought that was very clever. But I agree. It probably was fan service just for fan service. But to be perfectly honest, is not all of Star Trek Picard. So much of it feels like fan service, but it's an okay kind of fan service for the most yeah. part. And at least they had the same actor. It was always cool to see them bring people back like that. Yeah, exactly. You know, I was talking with my wife uh, yesterday, actually, and we were talking about the fan service aspects of it. And this really feels like TNG's version of Star Trek V and Star Trek VI, where, you know, the, the cast is aging. And it's more about their camaraderie and callbacks and, you know, just that that feeling of one last rodeo. And I'm kind of okay with that for the same reasons I love those last couple uh, TOS movies. I So when I see stuff like Moriarty, yeah, he was a little out of character, but it still gave me warm fuzzies. Yeah, one of the things I like about this season is that they're finally behaving like it's all one Star Trek universe. Yeah. Like, you don't have to keep Voyager, D space nine and TNG separate. Like, and it's not just the occasional crossover. You can actually have things happen in one that affect the other. And we're seeing the culmination of all of that in this season, which I really appreciate. Yeah, definitely. So were you surprised that 
the AI protecting Daystrom Institute was data? No, not really. I mean, if you want the best, you go with the best. And data has always been one of the most complicated AIs in all of Star Trek. So why not? Mm-hmm. Especially when you combine, you know, all the brain power of the the Soong androids. I no, I think that was great. I do have to wonder if they knew when they wrote season one of Picard, spoiler, and they killed Data <laughs> at the end of it, that they knew that they were going to be doing what they're doing now with season three. I almost feel like they don't, but I mean, how many times have we killed Data and he comes back? They mentioned twice in this episode that they've seen him die twice. <laughs> and so so what would that be? The end of Picard season one, we have the end of Nemesis. Spoilers That's for a it. 20-something-year-old movie. But we also yep. found his head under San Francisco. Time's arrow, I don't know if yep. that counts as dying, but <laughs> yeah. It's almost a trope in its own, you know. I mean, you want to talk about Space Jesus, forget Picard. He's only died once. <laughs> That's true. Well, I have a question for you. If uh, I, I, Ken, I was wondering your thoughts on um, when they were listing all the personalities in the new body. Yeah. Um, so we have Data, yep. we have Lore, yep. and we have Lal. Yep. We haven't seen any of Lal yet. Do you think we're going to? Well, that's a good question. And this sort of ties into the next episode, Dominion, which is when we found data on Daystrom Station, we were told they had data before Lal, Lore, and Alton Soon. Mm-hmm. Oh, how could I forget before? Okay. And I think we saw at least data, Lore, and before when he was mm-hmm. first activated at the end of this episode. And then the next week, they're saying, oh, Data and Lore are the only active personalities. B4 and Alton Soong are just data files. Mm-hmm. And and they didn't mention LOL at all. And I feel yeah. like they just decided that it was, it was almost like the new Star Wars movies where they decide, oh, yeah, first your parents are nobody. No, your parents are somebody. And it's just like the, the next writer didn't like what the previous writer did. So they just ignored it. Oh, Exactly. And that's such a shame because I think, again, with a new generation starting to get into these shows, I've seen so much love for that episode with Lal. Mm -hmm. And it would be a shame to just kind of leave that as a throwaway comment. I think people really appreciate the idea of Data as a father. They appreciate the trauma that he experienced and everything that Lal experienced in her brief life. And I would love to see, I don't know how they would do it. Um, I don't know how Brent Spiner can, you know, recreate that same essence. But yeah, um, I think it would be great to see a callback to that. And let's not forget Data as a parent who lets his kid choose their own gender. Mm-hmm. Isn't, wasn't that wonderful? Not just their gender, but their, their appearance as well. Mm-hmm. That that is, you know, from my personal standpoint, that is a beautiful approach to parenthood, mm-hmm. and it was so progressive to see it on the screen in the 1980s. But of all the characters listed as being in this synthetic form, Lal is the only one who was not played by Brent Spiner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it'd be interesting to see. Oh, come on, yeah. 
So I can see why they might not include her in the list of active personalities mm -hmm. because you were saying how wonderful an actor Brent Spiner is and getting to be all these people. That might not be somebody he has a history of being or is capable of being. That's very true. Yeah. Mm. Well, maybe I can give him some tips. <laughs> I am a little confused, though, because the changelings have infiltrated Starfleet. Mm -hmm. And even at this point, we're at the end where they capture Riker, and it turns out that one of them is a changeling. If they have so penetrated the highest echelons of Starfleet, why did they need to steal from Daystrom at all? Why couldn't they just file a requisition form and get whatever they needed? Right? I I have a feeling that, you know, when you're highly ranked enough, you can just kind of check things out like that. I don't know. Yeah, I feel like they were stealing from themselves. If they were mm -hmm. already embedded in Starfleet, they didn't need to cause a spectacle of stealing a portal weapon and destroying a recruitment center. Right? You just say, oh, the Admiral needs this. Yeah, exactly. So uh, so that's a good question. Are they? We know they're pretty deeply infiltrated into the Starfleet. Are they um, infiltrated into the Federation civilian government as well? I do not know. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, brief aside, I have said before that I kind of feel like Worf is being played for laughs this season with his transition mm -hmm. to pacifism. But I do like the humor that Riker has brought to the season, like earlier in the season where he talked about like being on the top bunk and saying, it's like being back in the Academy, except I need to pee more often. <laughs> you know, and this time when he and Worf are about to transport over to days from station and Worf says, you know that I've converted to pacifism and Riker says, we're all going to die. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You uh, know, no matter how tense or stressful the moment is. And the reality is they could all die. He mm -hmm. nonetheless just had to throw that quip out. And I liked it. That that's Riker. Totally. Mm -hmm. This is the guy who can't sit in a chair. Normally the guy <laughs> who, cool does holodeck jazz concerts i think it's it's just wonderfully irreverent i think it gives him a personality besides being just a military man mm -hmm. and i thought he's always been a wonderful contrast to picard so yeah i love seeing the you know i love seeing that side of him and i liked Riker being the one to figure out it was pop goes the weasel that was playing mm -hmm. a beautiful callback there yeah, I don't know that they necessarily needed the flashback that they showed us because yeah. I think those who have picked up on all the other references this season would have got that one as well. Sure, but it was a nice little fan service moment anyway, a flashback to Encounter at Farpoint. So that was really cool. Yeah, it was nice to see them all so young again. Although, oh my God, uh, yes. I, I need to uh, shift topics for a brief second because speaking of people getting older... We saw in TNG when Data and LaForge tried to grow beards and they're like, nope, this doesn't work. Let's get rid of it. And now LaForge shows up with a beard. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, I know from speaking from personal experience, as you get older, you want to look older. So you grow a beard and I did that and it worked great. But I don't know. I would rather people just not change. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it seems like there's been a lot of changes in LaForge anyway, and maybe not always for the better. So, yeah, I don't know. 
two last things about this episode is when data well first of all data has holographic projection eyes now that's cool Mm -hmm. uh when he announced like they asked him what did they steal and he says jean-luc picard jean-luc picard saying it over and over Mm -hmm. before he projected the human remains what did you think was going on there did you have any thoughts or impressions my only impression was that it was probably a malfunction Mm uh you know i certainly wasn't expecting that um I so Starfleet has a history of when people die, you just load them in a torpedo and shoot them off into space. Right. Why were John Luke Picard's re- remains kept? Why were they preserved like that? Other than again, him being space Jesus. Mm-hmm. It just seems very bizarre that they would do that. Well, you know, we forgot to mention the other callbacks we saw in Daystrom Institute. There was the Genesis weapon. Mm-hmm. There was a weaponized Tribble. And mm-hmm. there appeared to be the remains of James T. Kirk. Oh, I missed that. Yeah, at one point they walked past a display with a diagram of a human body. And the caption says James T. Kirk. And the original series theme song briefly plays. Oh, Oh, wow. I really missed that. Interesting. Yeah. So I don't know why they have his body. If it was recovered from the base of the bridge, he fell off when he died in generations. Interesting, but also creepy. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Now now I'm picturing Jordy going around dusting, you know, (gasps) corpses. Uh, Yeah. Well, and well, I, Jordy, well, Jordy's at the museum. This was all at Daystrom. Oh, that's that's right. This was all at Daystrom. I forgot about that. So, yeah. yeah. Why at Daystrom? Unless they're looking at bringing, bringing Kirk back? I do not know. Oh, my God. Well, I when Data started repeating his captain's name, I got mm-hmm. that it might not be a malfunction, that he was actually answering the question, but I could not comprehend how it was an answer to the question until they said, oh, they stole your body. And you know what? I had just the day before gone to PAX East, the video game convention. Mm -hmm. I attended a panel about the 35-year history of the Mega Man franchise. Oh, my God. We could do a whole thing on that. They did at PAX. (laughs) And there are so many more games in that series than I was aware of, so many that I haven't played. And it turns out in you know 35 years, they've had a lot of spoilers. In one of the games... They did the exact same thing where the main character gets a new body and the old one gets repurposed by the villain. And now the hero has to fight his old body. Mm. And so since that concept had never occurred to me until I went to that PAX panel, when I saw it the very next day in Star Trek, (laughs) I was like, oh, they're pulling a Mega Man. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Last thing about this episode is... Riker gets kidnapped. He's on the Shrike. Supposedly, he is confronted with his wife, who's now being held prisoner. And I can believe that because mm-hmm. Medic had said, just like in the uh, Firefly movie, for, let's go with a scorched earth. Let's seek out every family and associate of Picard. So it makes sense that they would have Deanna Troy. On the other hand, imagine you're Riker and you're put on a ship full of changelings. And you're confronted with your wife. Are you going to immediately believe, oh, yeah, that's my wife? No, absolutely not. And, you know, 
I, I keep wanting to jump ahead to the next episode, but much like Seven with Tuvok, you're going to want to ask the right questions and find out if this is indeed Deanna. And right. um, I wouldn't put it above Riker, but yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting to see where that goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and let's talk about where mm-hmm. that goes in episode seven, Dominion. Uh, I got. I'll be right up front. This was, in my opinion, the weakest episode of the season, and part of that is because they immediately wrote off Worf, Rafi, and Riker, who have all been so integral since the first episode of this season, and now none yep. of them are anywhere to be seen. Mm-hmm. Yep, they're off on La, La Serena. Just yeah. Yeah, I mean, Riker's on the Shrike. Worf and uh, Rafi are on the Serena. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And it just it felt remiss. I mean, on one hand, yes, this season has a lot of characters and you can't have everybody all the time. But it just seemed odd to have these characters in six episodes and all Mm -hmm. of a sudden they're just conveniently absent. Like, even if you had just had a moment where Worf and... Rafi are saying, oh, we're going to go on this intelligence mission. We'll see you later by some sort of a departure disembarkation from the Titan. But to just have them not there, I just I, I understand that like you need to pay actors per episode and it doesn't make sense to have them show up for five minutes. But it was just weird to have them not there at all. It's very weird. And Rafi was such a pivotal character in season one and even in season two. And now, yeah, just she's off. And we don't know. You're right. We don't know what real world obligations these actors had or it very well could have been money. But yeah, I think the character deserves a lot more and deserves to be centered. Kind of like, you know, what you were saying with what you envisioned the the second and third seasons being. She's part of this Star Trek Picard ensemble. Mm hmm. You know, it's interesting you mentioned about real-life commitments. I remember an early episode of TNG where it opens with the captain's log and Picard says how Riker is off on a conference and mm-hmm. he's not seen anywhere in that episode. But just as Picard is saying that, the opening credits are rolling and it says, directed by Jonathan Frakes. <laughs> well, we know he, what he was up to. Yeah, and nowadays, like in... Picard season three, episode four, no win scenario, which was directed by Jonathan Frakes. Mm-hmm. He, as is the previous episode, 17 seconds. Now he's certainly capable of being in a show he is directing, but I can imagine 35 years ago, TNG still getting his director feet wet. He wants to just focus on one thing at a time. So he was away at a conference. Yeah. I think also, you know, that's the realities of TV and movie production. There's union rules for when you're, you know, if somebody's taking multiple roles in a production like that, they would have had to pay him as an actor and a director. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure Paramount and the Star Trek franchise in general are in a much better financial shape than they were in the 1980s. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So what about the latest episode, Dominion, do you want to focus on first? Oh, my goodness. Um, Jack, what yeah. is up with Jack? <laughs> Do you have an answer to that question? I do not have an answer for that. It's very clear he uh, he is telepathic. He also can intuit things like that everybody else in the hallway was a changeling. But we don't know 
the backstory of this. And it's clear that, you know, everybody wants to use Picard to get to him. But yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing the reveal on this. Yeah, there was a season of the TV show Heroes that I thought made a useful distinction in telepathy, the difference between pull and push. When you can read other mm. people's minds, you're pulling. But in this episode, we saw Jack for the first time pulling. He was reading Sydney's thoughts, but mm-hmm. then he also started pushing. He started controlling her body. And that's that's a powerful ability that we rarely if ever see in a star trek species exactly yeah you look at the betazoids they never do anything like that they're not that Mm -hmm. manipulative Mm -hmm. yeah yeah one thing we forgot to mention in the previous episode uh the bounty is that's when jack was diagnosed with aromatic syndrome just like his dad Mm -hmm. had yeah and i was immediately suspicious of that diagnosis because aromatic syndrome does not give you the ability to instantaneously incorporate martial arts that would allow you to defeat four changelings. Mm-hmm. And this week we were looking at why Picard's body was stolen and data said, uh, initial diagnosis of aromatic syndrome is unconfirmed. Oh, and that's so right. It's possible it's weird to me that Picard might never have had aromatic syndrome because we literally saw him die of it in mm-hmm. the one finale. Uh, and also, if it wasn't aromatic syndrome, if he had whatever Jack has and it's giving Jack superpowers, and that means the captain of the Starship Enterprise that we knew and loved for seven years of television was actually some sort of a latent superhuman. And that I have a hard time buying into. And I think, again, that's because we fell in love with him as a human being and part of this bigger family. And I think that's that whole space Jesus aspect of Picard that kind of rubs me the wrong way. It's we we don't need Jean-Luc Picard to be that kind of superhero. We don't need him to be superhuman. He's a good, honest, moral, brave man. And yeah, I really hope we don't start going down that direction i hope and also i hope we allow jack to be his own character without having to just be the younger picard i remember an episode of voyager where harry kim was led to believe at one moment that he was actually an alien who had been embedded on earth and he Mm -hmm. finally found his origin species in the course of voyager's voyages and one of the lines harry said was I always felt different <laughs> because he believed this theory that he was in fact alien. And now we have Jack saying the exact same line. So like when he said, I've always felt, and he was, he paused. I thought to myself, you're going to say different, just like Harry Kim, yeah. didn't you? And he did different. I was like, oh, <laughs> damn it. I mean, does anybody ever grow up saying I've always felt the same? No, no, I hope not. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, we're all outcasts in some way that we think makes us isolated and alone. And if I'm wrong about that, Ken at transporterlock.com, let me know (laughs) that you feel the same. But yeah, I just, I I don't know where Jack is going. I don't know, even like Picard's theory, oh, you need my body and Jack's DNA to complete an incomplete clone or something. I was like, what? 
Yeah. If, if you have Picard's body, why would you need anything else? Mm-hmm. And, and also they're changelings. Like, yeah, I don't get it. Replace yeah. his blood with changeling goo and do your puppet show. You know, it's clear that that's what they want to do. Yeah, like they've proven that the new changelings, the evolved changelings can get through the security. Mm-hmm. But now they're saying, oh, the frontier day, that requires a genetic scan and that defeats changelings. So you need an actual body. I was like, what? Wait, but what? Changelings are in, well, going back to your point earlier, the changelings are in charge of the Federation or at least Starfleet. So couldn't they rig up a fake genetic scanner? Right, like, did you see the movie Gattaca? Oh, God. <laughs> Not for a long time, but yeah. Yeah, like, at the very end, what my, one of my favorite moments, the final scene, again, spoiler, the main <laughs> character is, he has to undergo, at the last minute, a genetic scan, and he's always been prepared for these. He's had fake urine samples, fake yeah. hair samples, but only when he's prepared, and now he encounters one that he hasn't prepared for, and he prepares himself to be outed, because he's caught unawares and off guard and the guy running it just fakes the result and lets him through mm-hmm. and i'm like okay if you have a changeling running the genetic scanner at frontier day that's a lot easier to arrange than stealing human remains from daystrom station exactly it's very convoluted i mean so was q's whole plan last season so well yeah don't get me started on that <laughs> They did capture Vatic briefly, and we found out her backstory. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the previous episode, when she caught Riker on Daystrom Station, that was the first time we'd actually confirmed that she herself is a changeling. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you already knew she was. I suspected she was not, and I was wrong. Yeah, I was very surprised by that as well. Um and I don't know why, why I never figured that, knowing that, you know, we had understood the changelings being being involved in all this. But yeah, it took me off guard. Um, I think also, I'm used to picturing changelings looking like Odo, using 1990s CGI technology. And here we are with much more evolved changelings. And I'm not used to thinking that, you know, they can look very realistic. I mean, even very realistic hair. And it's, uh, yeah. What do you think about Vatic's backstory, about how she was one of 10 changelings that Starfleet had captured and experimented on? Um, I actually kind of liked that and in a twisted sort of way because it fits into a lot of the themes we saw in DS9 regarding the Dominion War and the choices we had to make and how Star Trek isn't always, or, sorry, Starfleet and the Federation aren't always the perfect good guys. So I did like seeing that kind of callback. How about you? What do you think about that? It's a good question. I, be- I find it somewhat believable when you consider how Odo was discovered because mm-hmm. he was also experimented on before they knew he was sentient. Uh, he was experimented on by, I think, was it Cardassian? I think it was Cardassian. Uh, or maybe Bajoran. Gosh, I should know this. I think Bajoran. Okay, let's go with that then. You're right, because Cardassians would have been much crueler. Oh my goodness, yes. 
so it's somewhat believable that Starfleet would do the same. They knew that they were sentient, though, and they were trying to make them into more powerful changelings, super spies. I'm like, mm-hmm. this is these are the bad guys. You don't want to give them superpowers. Oh, but that surely will turn out well. Well, not only that, um, I realize there's a certain amount of dehumanization that goes on when you're at war with somebody, but we still recognize them as sentient life forms. And the idea that we would torture somebody and do medical experimentation on them like that just seems so, so extreme and so antithetical to what you would expect from the Federation. It it's almost painful to watch from that aspect, but I'm glad to see, you know, Trek exploring that. Yeah, I don't think it was clarified whether or not these experiments were being done by Section 31, which in my opinion mm-hmm. would make it more believable if it was. Oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. But on, on the other hand, having it be Section 31 gives them a total out. It makes it so easy to say this wasn't really the way we do things in the Federation. You know, much as we see with uh, real world governments, you know, there's always that plausible deniability. Oh, that's a rogue element, a rogue faction. When can we really say that that wasn't, you know, under the direction of the highest levels of the Federation? Just like how these changelings are supposedly a rogue faction themselves. Mm -hmm. However, I don't know that it gives them that much plausible deniability because multiple times this season, it's been mentioned how Starfleet sought out genocide by bioengineering a virus to kill all the changelings. Mm-hmm. That was Section 31 that did that. Oh, that's true. It was. And Star- yeah. Uh, Agent Sloan was the one who mm-hmm. did it. And Starfleet has never denied it. They've never said, oh, that wasn't us. That was Section 31. That's true. They've owned that. And one thing I like that Vatic said is, you know, even Picard a couple of times this season has said, we bioengineered the virus, but we also gave them the cure. And that was my recollection as well. And Vatic said, Mm -hmm. no, you didn't. You refused to give it to us. It was one of our own who gave it to us. And I was like, oh, crap, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Bashir and O'Brien went into Sloan's head to get the cure. And that killed Sloan, but it cured Mm -hmm. Odo. That's what they were trying to do was not cure the Dominion, but cure Odo. And then Odo gave the cure to the founders. That was when he rejoined the Great Link, right? That was part of the agreement. There was yeah. uh, He was on the Cardassian homeworld. He met up with who we referred to at the time as the female changeling. Mm-hmm. And they. he said, I'm going to give you the cure in exchange for you ending the Dominion War. And they did. And then Odo said to Kira, there was one more agreement I had to make to end the war. And that's that I would rejoin the Great Link. Oh, that's um, right. By the way, there was one more scene somewhere in DS9, I think it was season 7, where uh, Garrick, the tailor, had Odo, he was being inter- he was interrogating Odo, and he had some sort of a field, like a morphogenic field, that prevented Odo from changing shape. And Odo had to go into his bucket like he does once a day, and he was literally falling apart, nearly dying from the fact that he couldn't due to this field. And Garrick was like, Odo, just tell me what you know. Tell me what they want to hear. I want to save you, but I can't. And Odo confessed that he actually wanted to go back to the Great Link. Mm-hmm. And Garrick then pushed the button. Odo immediately collapsed into a bubble or goo or whatever. Goo, yeah. 
<laughs> and so now we have, we know that technology exists, this morphogenics field. I don't know if it was Starfleet issue or not. We presume that's how they kept these 10 changelings in literal test tubes. And yet somehow one of the changelings got out, killed the tormentor, the torturer who was doing all these mm-hmm. experiments. And I was like, what was the failure there that allowed this changeling to escape? And, you know, that's a very minute detail that we're not going to get an answer to, but minute details are what I watched Star Trek for. <laughs> and I, I can't help but wonder, like, how how did this, how did Vedic get out? How, how, how did you let that happen? I think this is one of the areas that the Trek fan community shines in. Mm in that we fill in those gaps ourselves with fan fiction and headcanon and we talk about it and we obsess over it. And I, I imagine there's lots of exciting theories out there about it. I wouldn't be surprised if somebody let their guard down on purpose and realized what was going on. And maybe they, they whoops, forgot to turn the field back on one day. I love that theory that somebody saw this torture going on and saying, this is not what Starfleet stands for. You mm-hmm. know, just like how nowadays we have people who I'm going to break into this animal testing lab and free all the Guinea pigs. You no, know, exactly. I'm going to free these changelings and thus create everything we're seeing in this season. And you know what you do now is you go to chat GPT like I do every day and you ask it to write you some Star Trek fanfic about that. I have done that as well, and I have been mean to ask Sabriel if I could post some of the results to transporterlock.com. It's, oh, no. Don't, no, like the, the the prompt I, this is a slight tangent, I asked ChatGPT, uh, explain to me as if you were Ferengi why Star Trek Discovery is being canceled after five seasons. <laughs> and it would explain it, and I said, again, but now do it as a Klingon. Again, but now do it as a Cardassian. Wow. That is beautiful. Yeah, I got some great answers, and uh, I saved them all, of course. But anyway, uh, back to this season. So Picard and Crusher had Vatic captured in the force field, mm-hmm. and they were going to murder her. Yes. What do you think? Well, first of all, can we rewind a little bit to that whole chase? And the, the Alpha Beta was a Charlie... Yeah, Delta, Bravo, Echo, Delta, yeah. Whiskey oh my Tango, god, yeah. Um, that was a beautifully done scene. Again, seeing that everybody working together as a team, I think it was a beautifully executed action moment, hmm. which Star Trek is getting much better at doing than they used to be. But yeah, that that moment when they finally caught her. Um, I had kind of a lump in my throat. Like, where is this going to go? Because I was wondering, you know, we have these enhanced changelings. Can she just walk right through that force field? You know, is everybody safe? Is she going to turn into goo and find a crack in the floor that she can get through? Mm -hmm. That was a moment of tense drama for me. I don't Mm -hmm. know how you felt about that. I too wondered what she was going to do because we saw the Vorta when they were introduced on DS9, Vorta being a species engineered by the founders, mm-hmm. walk right through a force field. Like that's how we first learned about the Dominion. We thought we were rescuing a Vorta from the Dominion. We brought them back to Deep Space Nine and they walk right through a force field and then just beam away. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't know what she was going to be capable of. 
Uh, I didn't know uh, yeah, exactly like if she was going to sneak through a hole in the floor or what. I also find it weird that Jack and Sydney are fighting what we now know to be changelings, not just people in masks. And these changelings are not changing, which would make them much more lethal opponents. And Sabriel and I have talked a little bit about how, oh, now that they're evolved and able to simulate human internal organs, they're probably a little bit more solid than they used to be and thus less malleable. I'm like, okay, but still, they're changelings. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also, there was an episode, I think maybe this episode or the previous one, where they were on the strike and one of the changelings voiced some descent some mutiny and the other changeling just shot him dead yeah in ds9 we learned that no changeling has ever harmed another and when odo did so they punished him by making him a solid now i know that this is a faction that is splintered off from the great link but wow they have really deviated from their core principles if they're just going to shoot each other like that very much so and i wonder how much of the influence of the the strange talking head had to do with that almost. Um, oh, what's that? Uh, Snoke from uh, Star Wars. You know, it feels like we have a version of that now. And I'm wondering just how much this, this other entity, this other voice has affected the changelings. Yeah. At first I thought he might be projecting himself. Like he was some sort of a, transmission but he actually does mm-hmm. seem to be physically part of vatic and i don't understand yeah. what their relationship is i don't quite get that either um yeah hmm. was there more about uh vatic and like well also she did eventually escape when the force field failed and picard and crusher missed their shots at point blank range mm-hmm now, you could argue that that was their age. Maybe they're, they're a little rusty, but we've never seen that from Picard at all. Especially since we just saw Worf kill a changeling at point-blank range when it turned into goo and tried to escape. Mm-hmm, exactly. So I thought that was weird. I also thought their decision to kill Vadic was weird because you have her captured. Mm-hmm. Like, what, what harm can she do? Why not like bring her in or something? maybe they learned their lesson from all the other times people on star trek have captured somebody put them in the brig and had them escape maybe they would have been smart maybe uh smart but amoral i mean how many times should batman have killed the joker yet he never Mm -hmm. does that's true i did love the moment where Vatic is in the forest field. Jack is right there. One of the other changelings comes in, goes to shoot Jack, and Vatic says, no, don't. And Jack gets this grin because he realizes you are after me, but you're also after me alive. And that means mm-hmm. I can take shots that you can't. Oh, that was a beautiful moment. Yeah. Yeah. One more thing I want to talk about, and of course, if there are more for you as well, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, so we had the scene where the lore personality asserts itself, takes control of the ship. There are at least two parts about that I want to point out. One mm-hmm. is, if I told you I have a script where lore helps the changelings by taking over the titans that they can capture Picard's and Crusher's telepathic son, your answer would be fanfic. Mm-hmm. Right? 
the the convergence of all those different factors of them bringing lore on board of having changelings on board um, and them all working together when lore doesn't really have a relationship with the changelings. That is total like roll the dice fanfic, bring all this stuff together. Absolutely. And it feels a little bit like what some of the Batman movies used to do, which is by having too many villains. And that's the second reason why I felt Mm -hmm. this was the weakest episode of the season was that there were too many threads too many characters going on yes uh, okay so i was gonna say that too so we have lore in cahoots with the changelings on the same ship well picard and dr crusher and Jordy laforge and uh let's see who else wharf is gone but you know all these folks on board on the same ship and yeah it just feels like a very manufactured moment but again, it is Star Trek Picard, and it's all about fan service. So, I mean, I, admittedly, I did complain about all the characters who are missing this episode. Mm-hmm. And if they were here, it would have been even more convoluted. So I think my complaint isn't necessarily the number of characters, but the number of challenges they're facing. Mm-hmm. You know, so they're facing what does Vatic want? What is Jack's true nature? Aromatic syndrome does not explain the red door he was envisioning going through. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Data and Lore and maybe Law, but maybe not. We have Admiral Janeway and Tuvok. Uh, I don't know. There are just there are a lot of when they were caught in that nebula and they were trying to escape. Like that was a single concrete problem that they could mm-hmm. work together to solve. And now there's just so much they're trying to figure out and it i feel like the further we go into the season the more questions we have and i feel like we're in the back quarter of the season now we feel i feel like we should be getting some answers at this point yeah i would hate to see everything wrapped up in the last episode all at once i think that's kind of overload but i do have to kind of question where that feeling's coming from um, and, you know, I, I'm going to tap dance around the way of, of just kind of saying we're old. And I think you and I were raised on a very different type of television than a lot of the younger viewers. And if we look at this, it, we're in a, a post lost world where people kind of expect these multiple threads going on at the same time. And then them ultimately being tied together. A lot of TV these days is a lot more complex than an A plot and a B plot. I think, uh, especially, you know, we have longer television episodes. We have multimedia um, approaches. You know, for example, the TV show gets tied into Instagram reels and TikTok feeds and Facebook posts and comic book series and all that. And it allows us to expand the story a lot. It gives us space to explore all of these threads. And I think viewers today are expecting that level of complexity. And I think that's just the way TV seems to be going these days. And I, Star Trek has to keep up. Hmm. That's really interesting. There certainly are, you're correct, different expectations for different generations, which mm-hmm. some people have explained to me, that's why I can't stand the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings books. Mm. They, they are so detailed. And what fantasy author Ari Salvatore, who's 
novels I grew up reading. Uh, I have met him a few times, and he said to me that even though The Hobbit is what got him into fantasy in the first place, it was written for a pre-television generation. Yeah. And, and back then, we needed all those details filled in, whereas with so much more visual media available to us now, we can fill those details in for ourselves, and we don't need every single meal described to us, despite what George R.R. R. Martin may do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, he's off in his own world. But yeah, it's very true. And you probably have a good point that I never watched Lost. The only really serial show I used to watch was Deep Space Nine, when no other sh- season or show was doing that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not accustomed to this much. I even said to Sabriel in uh, a previous episode of this podcast that somebody described Picard Season 3 before it came out as TNG Season 8. And my response was, for that to be true, it would have to be episodic. Right. Yeah. And even though it's trickling out a new episode every week, it very much feels like a show that is meant to be binged, where you can keep track of all those threads in your head from one episode to the next. And like I said, it gets augmented with other stuff to allow you to immerse yourself in the, the complexity of the story. Sabriel has said the same thing. You are on the same page on that. And awesome. the downside is we are such stalwart Star Trek fans, you, me, Sabriel, that there's no way you could convince us to wait nine weeks to watch the whole season. Oh, my God. No, no. I, even if Picard feels like a chore, sometimes I will always watch it. I will watch anything that they put the Star Trek name on. Uh, again, because it's been such a part of my life from the very beginning, literally the very beginning. Mm. And I will always be excited to explore strange new worlds and, you know, enjoy everything about this series and this universe that's been created. When you say explore strange new worlds, is that capital SNW? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but also lowercase. Well, that is what ChatGPT seems to believe that uh, Lieutenant Ortegas and I are doing. In uh, we're exploring some strange new worlds. So, and on this family-friendly podcast, we're going to be on yes, yes. Uh, one of them being that when Data slash Lore sealed himself off from Jordy and took over the transporters and force fields, Jordy mm-hmm. takes that opportunity to say to data the things he didn't get to say before which was when you died it broke me it destroyed me and yes that was heart-wrenching it was a powerful moment an opportunity for jordy and it would have felt more sincere if he wasn't saying it just because he wanted to try to save his daughter sydney that oh that is a good point it felt very manipulative he was like data i know you're in there I need you to bring down the force field so I can save my daughter. By the way, when you died, it killed me. But I could also see that being a very real emotion for Jordy. Um, you know, we, we saw that relationship grow so much over the course of TNG. Even though Data, you know, always lamented not being human, he brought out the humanity and everyone around him, definitely, and especially Jordy. Yeah, and in the previous episode, I mentioned there are two moments that made me cry. One was watching Seven reminisce about Voyager. The other was when they beam back from Daystrom Station and Worf says, we've lost one ally but gained another. He steps aside and Geordi sees Data. Mm -hmm. That was really touching to me because 
Picard was there when Data died at the end of season one of Picard, but yes, they had a powerful relationship. Picard is the one who Data died for in Nemesis. I don't mm-hmm. question the appropriateness of Picard being there when Data died the second time, but Jordy was his best friend. Yeah. You know, and so for Jordy to see his friend for the first time in 30 years, that was a lot. Yeah. So I don't know if I necessarily interpreted that as manipulation as much as just kind of a last ditch pleading effort to for data to to take control, to you know, save the people who he meant so much to. But yeah, I could see that too. I could see it being um, manipulative to to save his daughter, to save everyone else. So that's all I got to say about these last two or these latest two episodes. Latest, yep. We still have what three more episodes in the season? Three more. Uh, three you're more. right. Next next week's is directed by Deborah Kempmeyer, who also did the latest episode, Dominion. Mm-hmm. And it is written by Matt Okamura, who has not yet written an episode this season. Mm. So I don't know what we should expect. The episode is called Surrender. It is episode eight. And then we have two more after that. We already know, by the way, the name of the last episode of this season. Do you want me to tell you what it is? Oh, I'm I'm dying to know. The Last Generation. Ooh. Yeah. And speaking of generations, a little bit of good news. I don't know if uh-huh. you've heard this yet, but they have announced what the new Star Trek series they're going to work on next is. Oh, I saw. You saw this? I saw it. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So production starts next year, 2024, on a show set in the same time era as the latest seasons of Discovery, which is about uh-huh. 900 years after Picard. And for the first time ever in live action TV, we are going to see a show set at Starfleet Academy. Oh, it is long overdue. It is so long overdue. Which also probably means we're going to see Tilly a lot. I can live with that. I really can. Speaking of another character that had a phenomenal growth and a very talented actor. um, I am so, oh, I love that idea. But I also love the idea of, again, kind of Picard is great in that it brings together this ensemble cast that we've known for literally decades and for you and me, pretty much our entire lives. And I love the idea of a fresh start with a young cast. I love the idea of bringing all the awkwardness of the college years into Star Trek. And maybe some people learning firsthand the lessons that drive a lot of the, mor- the morality in, that drives the, the older, more established members of Starfleet. I think there's so much potential there for storylines, for exploration. I really hope it doesn't turn into 90210 or Animal House in space. Or Riverdale. Or, right? But there is so much potential there. And it's a fresh take. And I'm really excited for that. Back in 1996, November, when I saw Star Trek First Contact in theaters, the theater I went to had a manager 
who was also a manager of the local comic book store. And he managed a cross promotion where he had a comic book display in the lobby of the movie theater. And there were three comics that caught my eye. One was the marriage of Lois and Clark in oh comic books. Oh my goodness. Books. Yeah. Another was the untold tales of Spider-Man, which was like an entry level, not a lot of backstory for you to know adventures of young Peter Parker. And the other was the debut of Starfleet Academy as an ongoing comic book series. Mm-hmm. And I had never really read comics other than like Donald Duck when I was a little kid. And when I saw all three of these that appealed to me, plus this was around the same time that Kyle Rayner became the Green Lantern. And so that was another easy entry point for me into DC Comics. So those four events all happening simultaneously, thanks to that display in the movie theater, going to see Star Trek First Contact is what got me into comic books. And so since Starfleet Academy was one of those moments, here we are like 35 years later almost seeing it on television that's just going to bring it all full circle i'm really looking forward to it oh absolutely that that sounds amazing i never got into the star trek comics um probably because i was so wedded to the tv series and the movies and anything in quote-unquote beta canon just didn't sit right with me but i know there's a lot of people who are really enjoying the stories that they're telling and the freedom that the medium gives for storytelling. So that's awesome. And I would love if they could explore some of those same ideas on screen. I think that would be awesome. Um, Yeah, that would be wonderful. And I know people say there's a lot of Star Trek on TV right now, but that's a good thing. Yeah, I agree. Although the fact that they're moving forward with Starfleet Academy makes me wonder where is the Section 31 spinoff we were promised years ago? Oh, you know, Michelle Yeoh's very busy right now. Um, But yeah, other than that, I I would love to see that series as well. Yeah, Michelle Yeoh, I think maybe she was, her star hadn't risen quite to this degree when she agreed to that spinoff. But also... I mean, she had some very physical scenes in Discovery, some very physical action fight sequences. And she's very talented, but she's also getting older. And I feel like Mm -hmm. if you want to continue doing those kinds of scenes, I mean, eventually Jackie Chan transitioned from on-star action hero to voice actor, Mm -hmm. uh, which, by the way, voice actors are amazing, and that's a great role for him. But it's going to be hard for Michelle Yeoh to be a voice actor on Star Trek. Oh, my God, right? So I hope that they either proceed with that series soon or they admit that their priorities have shifted and it's not going to happen, which would be a shame because Discovery Season 3 made a very deliberate point about sending her back into the past. And we want to know what happens with that. Absolutely. So, wow. So that has been an extended episode of Transporter Lock. Uh, Any final thoughts you want to share with our listeners? Oh my goodness, I could go on and on. Uh, for example, one thing we never touched on, and you know, we've seen this in the other series as well, is just computer voices in Star Trek without Major Barrett. It always strikes me as very weird. And I believe we saw a male computer voice this week, which really struck me as weird. Um, but it's all part of the evolution of the series. And Well, we yeah. had... We had one of those voice actors on this podcast, the voice oh. of the Starship Protostar, 
from Prodigy, Bonnie Gordon. I need to go back and listen to that. I haven't listened to any of the Prodigy episodes yet. So Sabriel and I agreed that it started off a bit rough. She felt Mm -hmm. more so of that opinion than I did, but we liked the way it evolved. It had some cool Star Trek fan service. It has some good actors. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you don't like the main character in the first five to 10 episodes, that is somewhat intentional and it does get better. Uh, But yeah, I highly recommend Prodigy and even Mm -hmm. Sabriel admitted at the end that she found it tolerable. Oh, I love Prodigy. I just haven't listened to the Transporter Lock episodes. Um, But yeah, yeah, Prodigy, I could never get my kid to watch it with me, which is a shame. I know it's meant for kids, but like I'm expecting from the Starfleet Academy, you know, series, it's young people kind of learning the lessons behind what makes the Federation the Federation and the moral principles that guide it. And a lot of times, oh, I'm going off on a tangent here, but we can be told the rules to live by, but until we experience firsthand the lessons that lead to that, we never really fully internalize those lessons. And I have seen so much of that in Prodigy. And I'm starting to see them, you know, act more like a Starfleet crew and it's wonderful. And I hope we get a lot of seasons of that show. It's just amazing. And of course. Kate Mulgrew. Oh my God. Can't get enough. (laughs) Speaking of not being able to get enough, Dana, if any of our listeners want to find you online, where can they go? Absolutely. So you can learn a little bit more about me in my day job as a engineering manager and my thoughts on uh, hiring, which is a big practice, a big priority of mine, uh, hiring and diversity, equity and inclusion. You can learn about that at DanaRoss.dev, and you'll also find links to some of my social media there. Uh, You can also go to links.DanaRoss.dev to find QR codes and other links to various articles about me and uh, different appearances of mine. Uh, You can also follow me on Mastodon as uh, DanaRoss at oldbytes.space, where I talk mostly about vintage computers. Vintage computers? I love vintage computers. You know who else likes vintage technology? Jordi LaForge. Perfect. Oh my gosh. We should the three of us should do a podcast together. Totally. <laughs> awesome. Well, Dana, it's been lovely having you on the show. Yeah, it's been wonderful being here. Until next time. Hit it. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at transporterlock.com.